I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Blake Johnson on the show today. Blake is a longtime sales rep for Rosenthal, going back to 93 tops of, in terms of perspective, and somebody who knew Robert Chatterton for more than just the phone call uh, and a unique viewpoint on the New York wine scene. Happy to have him on the show today. One, one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is that it was always very clear to me that you really believed in the wines that you were selling. And, you know, the conversation we just had about Bartow is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know... I may say one thing, but you're like, no, I'm, I, I firmly am on the side of this wine. Uh, how did you get to that point where you said, like, these are wines that I'm, I'm all about? What were some of the first experiences? How did your career play out where you firmly attached to the idea of the style that you, you might call the Rosenthal uh, portfolio? Uh, an interesting question, actually, and sort of a, you know, a long road. I think when I first got into the business in 1980, or actively in the New York scene, in 1980s at Windows on the World. And at that time, they were sort of the leading, you know, wine restaurant, but they were very California-driven at that time. I mean, I remember introducing Edna Valley, Shalone, places like that. And I w- you know, at that time, I was sort of enamored with that, you know, that big, oaky, full-on kind of style. And as the more time I spent there, the more I became sort of interested in wines from like Valana or Grofier or and that's and those were the wines I started to gravitate towards, the wines that were, you know, really spoke of uh, the balance and, and the place that they were from. And uh, by the time I left there and started to work for Chatterton, who had a very sort of directed French, Italian, although he had a lot of Australian things, which were sort of the yang of the, of the whole portfolio. Oh, he did? He had Australian things? Oh, yeah. Somehow we had a lot. Petaluma, Petaluma was there. Bowen Estate. Um, the old Brown Brothers initially started with those prior to me coming. But yeah, there was a lot really of Australian stuff there. At one time, I think we had 12 different producers at one time. Vas Felix, uh, the Chambers wines. I don't know if you know those sort of uh, late harvests. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. The, the Muscats. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and I, you know, after Chatterton fired me in, uh, 93, um, 
I, I was, you know, I pretty well had, you know, my own idea. I really wanted to believe in what I was selling, you know. I, I, I really was not interested at all in what was going on in California, and that was driving a lot of portfolios in Especially New York at that time. Especially in mid-late 90s. Right, 90s. you know. I, I spoke with Michael Skernick several times about working for him, but I just couldn't, like, push myself there. So I, I took a path that I think was, you know, less well-trodden, you know, Neil Rosenthal, and and we talked a number of times and I tasted a lot of the wines and I started, you know, really feeling that this was a good fit for me. And so we struck a deal and I started working with him. I almost feel like, uh, at least when I first got here, there was almost kind of an outsider mentality to Rosenthal. Like, yeah, all of you over there in the massive wine trade are drinking what you're drinking, but we're here and we're not ashamed of it. And we love these wines and you guys just don't understand them. And I feel like that was the, the subtext quite often. And now it feels like it's broken into the mainstream where everyone's like, of course, those are great wines. But at one time it felt like more of a kind of a rebel movement or something with, with not necessarily... Certainly bottles would be opened for people to try, but there wasn't the trade tasting. There wasn't the, hey, come for the portfolio event. There wasn't a lot of like outreach. It wasn't, if you didn't already have the desire to taste those wines, it wasn't necessarily, no one was trying to push you. It was like, okay, if you don't get it, that's fine. Is that fair to say? Or how, how is the company idea? I, I don't think that's fair to say, but just because the fact that we wouldn't be where we weren't if we weren't like breaking down doors, if we weren't, uh -huh. you know, calling on those, Getting in people. those people and saying, hey, this, this has merit, taste it. Let's, you know, let's, you know, let me explain this wine to you. Let, you know, here's the story. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, you know, you talk about somebody like Philippe Faro in Vouvray, you know, probably one of the great producers of the world, but it's, you know, those are very, you know, difficult wines to understand. And um, I think it takes, uh, uh, you know, a lot of experience, a lot of tasting, a lot of uh, time with the grower, a lot of seeing the wines in application in order to, you know, keep repeating that to sommeliers or to uh, wine stores and, and, you know, this is the application of Vouvray. You know, these are the foods. This is the, this is the style. This is what it really works with, you know. And I think that yeah, there's, you know, there's innumerable growers. I mean, w when we brought Jean-Marie Fourier in, into the market, who is now, you know, a superstar, um, nobody really had knew those wines or had any experience with them. And it was a matter of just getting them into people's hands, showing them those wines. I remember in, uh, you know, in 1993 when I started with Neil, we had, um, you know, 89s and 90s from Bartow available, wow. you know. Just you, you in could, open yeah, inventory. In open inventory. You know, and it's a matter of, like, getting that wine into certain people's hands. I remember taking the Bobrun, uh, um, Bobrun 98 to Eberhard Mueller. And, or excuse me, the, the Beaubrun 88 to Eberhard Mueller and uh, at Lutas at the time. And he was like flipped over the wine and bought 10 cases of it for the, for the restaurant. But that was, that was the kind of access we had at that time. Yeah. So, no, I, I think the big change came, you know, around the time of Mondovino, I think. Sure. Well, Neil's in a movie. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that was sort of, uh, you know, it was really a wake-up call in, in the marketplace for a lot of people. You know, it was controversial, but at the same time, um, pe it made people think in a different way, you know. Uh, and it, it, prior to that time, you know, it was, you know, we would travel around France and 
read, you know, whatever magazine was being published about gobs and oodles of fruit and cedar and tobacco and and Josh Reynolds, who was working with us at the time, Michael Caine and Neil and I, and we got Jesus, who wants to drink a wine that tastes like that, you know? And, and we kind of felt like we were the only ones out there, you know, buying Corbier from a traditional producer or, you know, in uh, Lombardia or whatever it happened to be that we're really looking for those, those wines and that the whole world was moving to this international style of, you know, taste, you know, where is it from? You really can't tell because it's all oaked up and over extracted, you know, and so it's, you know, and, you know, there's Cabernet and, you know, and everywhere, Piedmont or Syrah or whatever. I remember so, the first time you mentioned Lombardia. First time I tried Triaca Valtellina, mm-hmm. I I didn't get it at all. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I couldn't understand how anyone could drink it, and now <laughs> I love it. So, do you think that just um, do people's palates tune into a different wavelength of noise depending on what they're often drinking? Like if they're if they're used to to a big bluster, um, is that one thing? And then if you're used to a quiet symphony, is that another? You know, you know. I I think that's yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think you know I think people's you know palates and tastes certainly develop over time, and um, I think that sometimes when you sit across from somebody and say this wine's going to taste this way, and this is why, and this is the reason, and they taste it and it follows through, and then they go, oh yeah, I get it. You know, if they pick up a glass and they expect it to taste like California Cabernet, and it, you know, it tastes like Pinot Noir from the, the Cote de Bone. You know, it's it's a whole new game. You know, it's a whole different thing. So, so, so part of it is is not trying to sell it as a bill of goods that it's not. You're not trying to say, oh, this is just like California Chardonnay. It's made from the same grape. It just happens to be from Burgundy. Instead, you go in and you say the opposite of that. You go in and say this is really not like what you may have had before, but you know we believe in it, and that's kind of the technique. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, it's like you know, Chardonnay from Burgundy is not called Chardonnay. It's called Chablis, or it's called Chassagne, sure. or it's called Polini, or it's called Pernon, or it's called Macon, whatever. If we say, you know, it's it's from a place, it's from a village, you know, and that's the way you start to understand, um, you know, wine from Europe, I think, or you know, the old world. Do you think at this point that your tasting experience really lends you an aura of trust when it comes to wines that need some age on them? Like, you know, I talk to you and you can tell me, oh, yeah, Ferret, those wines age beautifully. And I had the 90 and the 88. And in fact, you frequently do do this for different producers and you know the wines quite well. Um, you know, because I don't have that opportunity. Like maybe the oldest wine that I've had of Ferret Polifuse was a 95, say. And, you know, I haven't gone that far back as you have. So then I wonder if that kind of aura that you have of uh, assertion and belief that the wines are quite good over a long tasting career for wines that really need that kind of appreciation really works, you know, like hand and glove. Well, it- Probably not as much as I would like it. Yeah, to work, yeah. yeah. To tell you it the truth, work a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that you really have to have a long relationship with a person. I think that's sort of on your wavelength. There are a lot of new buyers you can tell that to, and um, and try to convince them of that. But they're always very skeptical. They're skeptical. I want to taste they, they this. You know, I want to taste you. this. You know, it's like you really don't need to. You know, yeah. I. I, I I always wish that there was a, you know, there's a little bit more trust that, you know, when somebody called you up, you know, at seven o'clock at night and say, I need, 
you know, some X, Y, Z for my wine list or to pour by the glass. What do you got? And you give them something good. They say, well, can you get a bottle over here tomorrow so we can taste it? Right. You know, I'm still like... apologizing for that. <laughs> I said I was sorry. Yeah. No, but hey, I mean, so sommeliers, they don't always stick around like they used to. I mean, you don't see the necessarily the 10, 15 year career path that, uh, you know, some of the people who are beverage directors now uh, succeeded to have. I mean, for whatever reason, maybe because there's not a lot of those jobs or because uh, it's easier to get into and so maybe it's easier to get out of. But when you're dealing with, uh, you know, high turnover, fairly young people every three years, there's a new crop, uh, but yet the wines are more popular now than ever. Why do you think that might be? Um. Well, I mean, there's a lot more people, you know, interested in wine these days, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that there are a lot of uh, really good shops um, that are willing to, you know, you know, provide those kinds of wines for people and talk to people about it. I remember, um, you know, Neil was talking one time about, you know, what what somebody really needs, and I, you know, I certainly have heard the comments from, you know, other people have been here, David Bowler, for instance, so that you went to some place and the guy guided you through, hey, try this, this is really great, instead of, you know, what's on the internet, what's hot, what's written up, you know, 90 points or 95 points that you're chasing a number or something like that. You know, it's like, you don't drink points, you know, you drink wine, you, you know, it's the experience of it. You know, why, why if this guy's Claude Roche's you know, 95, 99 points, why don't you buy his Bourgogne Rouge and, and see what the guy's about, you know, instead of, excuse me, uh, investing that kind of money, or, you know, or trying to get something that you can't get, you know. So some someone comes in off the street, you know, uh, and they go to a retailer and, and they want to get uh, some wine to try to learn more about wine. They don't know a lot about it. What would you suggest they do to get a hold of uh France and Italy's terroirs. What kind of mixed cases should they be putting together? Well, I think they should try wines from, you know, the classic areas, the Loire Valley, Burgundy, you know, maybe it's Macon in Burgundy, Beaujolais, um, something from the Rhone, certainly something from Bordeaux, Alsace. You know, I, I think, you know, it's, I always say it's practice, you know, you just have to taste things. You just have to keep tasting things, you know. Retaste them. Maybe the wine that you didn't like six months ago, after tasting through and being serious about it and reading about it, you might really like that wine now. You know, I I think too. One of the biggest problems in this business, and I guess this is digressing a little bit from your question, is but that people don't spend any time with wines. You know, you you take. You go into a tasting with somebody and you maybe have six wines and you're opening those wines right now and this guy's powering through them as fast as he can, you know, putting it in his mouth once or something like that. They don't spend any time with it. They don't see how it changes in 10 minutes Mm -hmm. or, you know, they don't go back to that glass and smell what's residual there. Let the the bouquet develop a little bit, you know, something like that. It's, you know, you think somebody made this wine, they put it in a bottle, it's been there for five years, you're opening it right now and you're making a judgment about that wine like that, it's not, it's not right. It's not fair, you know? And that's, you know, I know people have, you know, buyers have limited amount of time, but sometimes I think they have to become more discriminating about who they share that time with. Mm-hmm. You can't share it with everybody. You have to make some decisions about where you want to go and then spend time with, with those people and let them 
and those wines and let them sort of speak to you and figure it out from there. So you're, you're saying if there's 40 portfolios in a, in a New York market, you're not going to be able to take 40 appointments in a week, but instead you should sort of maybe gravitate towards, you know, if you found a couple wines you like from a guy, maybe kind of spend more time with that guy or if the, what he's saying or how he's saying it kind of uh, appeals uh, or she, then maybe spend more time in that direction. Like if there's a glimmer maybe keep going down the tunnel with them and, you know, take more appointments with the, the person that seems to be speaking your language. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, I think you have to be a little more selective than a lot of people are. What would you say to someone who's a young sommelier? I, I mean, it seems to me like you have probably seen so many young people with their first buying gig, it, you know, and you see them do what you just talked about. They just rip through the wines. Maybe they don't really understand what's going on. Maybe they do understand. Maybe they get it right away. But if you could say to them in a situation that you can't normally, because it's a buy-sell relationship, if you could just give them some advice, because we do get a lot of young sommeliers listening to this, what would you say to these guys that could make them better at their job? I just say slow down, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, Michael Caine's a really good one. I mean, he told this, me a story one time about he was doing a tasting with somebody and they were like ripping through the wines. He goes, hold on, stop, you know, you got to, you know, this isn't what these wines are about. And he made the guy, you know, sit there with the wine. Well, the the thing that I was told about Michael Caine by uh, one of the guys that was traveling with him once was that uh, Michael Caine will be on time for the first appointment, but never the next two. <laughs> he always goes over. <laughs> for the rest over. of the day, probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he goes over the time because he, he so wants them to get it that he really focuses in on them. And I guess, I mean, I thought he was a madman, actually, at the time that I met him because, again, I didn't necessarily understand the wines at the time. This was a long time ago. This mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, 12 years ago, maybe. And I, I uh, was a buyer, and, you know, I'm being presented with wines that, I I mean, I, he was telling me they were good. Now I know they're great. Like, I, my perspective now, oh, God, I wish I'd done more with that wine. At the time, you know, it was also a different palate uh, thing, like, just for the whole country, mm -hmm. like, mostly, you know? And uh, I thought he was crazy, but I thought he was an interesting, crazy guy. You know what I mean? And now I can see exactly why, where all that passion was coming from, because I actually get the wines now. Well, you're dead on right. He is an interesting, crazy guy. But, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's funny, because when you came to New York, he called me up and he said, you know, Levy Dalton's coming there. And he says, he's, really Watch a, out. he's a really great guy. Make yeah. sure <laughs> cash on delivery. Yeah. Is that what he said? Yeah, he's, he gave me a very positive sort of... Well, you know, I always try to end well. Doesn't, <laughs> not, doesn't always start out well. But no, I just I was fascinated by the guy because, hey, look, you know, uh, it's the business of moving boxes for a lot of people, you know? Right, right. And here was a guy who seemed not to approach it so much that way. No. I think maybe that was... Yeah, you know, he's very, yeah, very particular. That's for sure. Very particular. And there was a sense, and I've actually seen this happen more and more with niche uh, importers, that they weren't necessarily interested in selling to everybody. Like, it was almost kind of a, they need to like you a little bit before they're going to sell it to you, which is, you know, not normally what you hear in a capitalist market. You know, <laughs> like, hey, I'm the buyer. You're supposed to do whatever I want, you know? And I feel like... Uh, Rosenthal is is by far not the most to like this of importers I can think of, but I do think it's an increasing trend where it's like, yeah, we sell to people who are going to get it, and if we don't we don't really bother with people who aren't going to get it, um, you know. And I guess there's some threshold where you have to make that decision of whether they are or not. But I've seen it go more and more that way as things have gotten more and more niche. You know, if a guy comes in and seems to be on a completely different page, they're just not really going to offer him the wines. I think. Well, I, I think sometimes, you know, you spend a lot of time with people and you show them a lot of things. And sometimes you just have to walk away until they can sort of 
catch up to you a little bit. And then sometimes really good relationships develop through things like that. You know, I actually think you're the master of that. I think you're the master of the pause. You're the master of uh, bringing people closer to you by not necessarily being super um, effusive. Like uh, you let people talk to you in a way because you don't talk over them. I don't, uh, you're really good with that. I, I would just say myself, my own personal view, which, you know, uh, we have one relationship. I'm sure you have relationships with a billion people and they may, they may see you differently. But that's what I see is that um, you don't, uh, you do, you do, you do back away. You, you know, if, if if it doesn't seem right, you don't try to push it. And it's interesting because it's not, it's not, say some of the bigger, really bigger companies. That's not the model. So you know, it, it speaks to you believe what you believe, and um, and you want to see it go to the right home. Is that important to you that someone appreciates it when they open the bottle? I think so. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's what it's all about. You know, that they're excited about you know whatever wine that you're showing them. I remember Jonathan Rapp at Etage Unie, and when I first started with Neil, I would take all these wines to him, and he would just, I mean, he his eyes would sort of tear up, and he would go, I I, I just don't get this, you know, because of the the component of acidity that were was in the wines, and so. I sort of re-strategized it and I picked things that were a little easier and a little fruitier and not quite as obviously acidic as things I'd been showing him before. And those were the things that he wanted to see, but they weren't necessarily the wines that that he was going to like. And so we started a really nice relationship and he went buying the wines that I picked out that I thought he would like. And eventually it got to the other point where he was actually liking the things that... Um, that uh, that he wanted to like, you know, initially wanted to like. And so it, just, it was the evolution of that palette, you know, and, and just sort of, you know, taking him from an easy point in the portfolio to a more difficult point in the portfolio. One of the things that's really interesting uh, about you is that you have a perspective of having worked for a single portfolio for a, quite a long time, almost 20 years. Almost 20 years, yeah. And so you've actually watched not just trends happen, not like, hey, this is big, but you've watched uh, how things happened, like where they went, like where the sale order went. Are there restaurants that you really associate with the development of a market for a certain wine? Like I remember one time you were like, you know, that restaurant uh, really had a big impact on New York's appreciation of LaVey. Like they really broke it into the market. Are there times when you think like, I mean, obviously Neil brings in the wine. Obviously Bernard LaVey makes the wine. Obviously those are super important components, the most important components. But in terms of actually uh, selling it to the consumer, have you seen retail shops or restaurants actually make a particular wine? Oh, yeah, many times, I think. Um, and it's been very important. I mean, you're speaking of the example of Café Boulud and with Olivier, and he saw that we had this huge vertical of Levee, and he sort of gravitated to that and put all these wines on the list, and he was buying, you know, three, four, or five bottles at a time of each one of these things. And pretty soon, you know, we were running out of vintages and running out of vintages, and he was just, you know, take, going to tables and giving these people all these options, and they were taste, drinking all this Cote Roti. And it, 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 
you know, it resonated. And then you'd get telephone calls. Where can I buy this wine? Where at the retailer. I, yeah, because at the, the customer's at the, right, going to the retailer exactly. asking for it after having had it at the right. restaurant. And, and not, you know, certainly in a challenging wine, La Vey Cote Roti, you know, for I consider anybody. it a little uh, not the friendliest, especially when it's young. Yeah, especially when it's young. I mean, uh, we had a blind tasting with Neil one time, and he brought out an 83 La Vey Cote Roti. Yeah, I've had that wine, and it's killer. I know. It's and it's like, not a good year. I think that's why he brought it out is because he wanted to show uh, the time. Well, I, you know, I mean, I was like, oh, this is this is old Ferrando. This is old Carrema. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was just, you know, it was beautiful. It was the really... burly thing that you get from young Chevroche. I, yeah. I didn't see, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, it's that challenging line for sure. Are there other, other examples of that that would come to mind where you think, boy, you know, I mean, who, for instance, really got behind Ferrando? Did anybody really get behind Ferrando? A or? lot of people got behind Ferrando, yeah. I mean, that that was another one that sort of languished. Now... You know, we're going to bring in the next vintage of Ferrando in the fall, and it'll be completely sold out. No way. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, by the time it hits ground, it's really that kind of broad-based sort of thing. You know, I think you can't discount people like David Lilly or, you know, that kind of uh, store or, um, you know, Patrick Watson or, you know, people like that that have done it. And on the retail level, you know, you always had, you know, loyal people at Babo. Whether it was David Lynch, um, you know, that have have pushed those wines and brought those wines in and exposed people to those wines. One of the things I see with Neil, though, is he really has consumers on his side. Like there is, a, especially, I mean, I live in the Upper East Side. That's where the store is. So maybe I see it more. But people, it seems like he it bridges the gap between like, oh, yeah, we like Neil's wines a lot. Like in the way Dresner has it to some extent, where the the end consumer is all about that importer. Um, you know, does that help sometimes in the sense of like, because Ferrando, I feel like I don't see huge verticals when I go somewhere. I feel like maybe a lot of it disappears to private sellers. I'm, I'm not a sure. A lot of it does disappear to private sellers, but a, a lot of it, you know, the, the problem now is that um, in terms of a lot of wines, you know, Burgundy, that so much is retail driven. So the releases are sold out, you know, uh, on those kinds of wines. So you never have that kind of wine you know, 10 years old in inventory anymore for a restaurant. Which you guys used to do a lot. Which we had a lot more of it in the past. Yeah. I mean, when I first started with Neil, you know, for first five, maybe 10 years, my business was mostly restaurants, you know, upwards 75%, 80%. Now I'm I'm probably 50-50. And it's and it's not because I want to be that way. It's just because if I don't become that, then there, that wine won't be around anymore. You know. So, so even in an age where maybe sommeliers have never gotten as much press as they do right now, you're really saying a lot of momentum has shifted to the retail side, as maybe people don't want to pay the markups on restaurants. No, or? I don't think it's necessarily the markups. I think it's just that there there's a very um, you know sort of internet. Uh, audience that is looking for a lot of these wines and a lot of it goes you know that they're collected that way because uh, of wine searcher people can see what a yeah, store right. has i don't know this is actually even wine searcher but it's you know there are some very reputable um retailers with great palettes that are buying interesting stuff and and purveying that to a lot of their clients i think you know it doesn't necessarily have to be the most expensive in the case of you know karema or something like that but they believe in those wines and they get them into the into cellars and into other people's hands. 
So what happened with Bea? I mean, that just seems like, of all the wines you have, just the cultiest of the cults. I mean, people really want, there's a specific audience for Bea, as there might be a specific audience for Ravenel. You know, people really associate it with high quality. Um, where did that start? Why? And who got behind it? Well, I think Bea got behind it. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which know? is always a good person to have start yeah, the ball Jean-Pierre Obea, Paul Obea's son, who has really been a driving force from the very beginning of that of that winery. I mean, he's they spent a lot of time in terms of and money in terms of you know improving their facilities and improving the wines. I mean, the first time I went to Bea. Um, they showed us the farm, they showed us the cows, they showed us the rabbits, the olives. And I said, well, where do you make the wine? And he opens these double kind of closet doors in about a half-sized garage, and all this equipment was pushed against the wall. And I went, hmm, I get it now. And so I left, because those wines were very volatile when, mm-hmm. they, when they were first made, and or in those days. And then then... You know, I sort of started selling the wines, and over the next couple of years, they seemed to change a little bit, and the, the volatility of the wines was not what it was before. And so, the next time I went there, there's a big stainless steel tank outside, and I went, oh, I get it, you know. They, you know, they're sort of entering the modern age in a certain sense. So, not that these wines aren't really very, very natural, but at a certain point, you have to be able to control some fermentation temperatures, you know, and you have to, uh, you, you know, else you're going to get wines that are just wild, you know, that only a few of us can appreciate or understand or even want to appreciate or understand, you know. So that's, uh, and I think that, you know, we spent a lot of time tasting those wines with people and getting them into their hands. And certainly Sagrantino, you know, the driving force behind the Sagrantino fr- from Bea, which has been the really, uh, I think, been the, the turning point of those wines and really made them um, popular and understandable. Because originally there was no dry Sagrantino bottling. That was something that right. I mean, fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't a DLC for it, and, uh, but he would put in, you know, in, in his Vino de Tabla, um, just uh, high percentages of Sagrantino. Right, we sold as with that. Sangiovese, yeah, yeah. Sangiovese Bayo and Rosso. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And those were always, you know, the reserve of the better wine, even though it wasn't, you know, had, had no... Uh, uh, DLC or DLCG. And so, so when, once he, they, there was dry Sagrantino, that was a major leap. You okay. Know? So it was actually that product edition that kind of like got people. Uh, I, I on think, board. yeah. You, uh, then you had, you know, Rosso de Montefalco because, you know, I think Sagrantino is much more red fruited grape than. Well, either, it isn't in his hands, it is. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's not over extracted or oaked up. So, you you know, you, you taste that, the purity of the grape. You know, it, it, I mean, the original appellation was Sagrantino Pasito, you know. Right, exactly. Or Which is just very good. Yeah, for right, right, right. So, are there other times where that uh, conceptual leap has happened when you've gone to France? I mean, what are good examples of that, of the, oh, I get it kind of moments? Like, for instance, I remember you guys said that you went to Simone and you're like, yeah, the vineyards face north. That's why, you know, the wines this far south make such elegant wines, because uh, it's fairly, you know, the latitude is fairly south in, in France. Are there other moments where, you, like, the conceptual thing just sort of happened? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, many times. I remember even back when t- with Chattern and the first time I went to see Hewitt, 
I could never sell those wines, those Vouvray's, you know, sack, demi-sack. And then after I was there and saw what was going on and tasted the wines in the context of the place, that, I mean, that was probably one of the greatest aha moments I ever had in my life. And I just came back and, and you know, I, I, I had to sell them to everybody. They had to have something, you know, on their shelves. And I, I think, you know, Prado is another one too, you know, it's just like, you, and it's maybe not even the first time you go into those cellars that you get it, you know, it's the second, the third, fourth time. Oh, yeah. So it's not just the... No, it's never... I mean, I remember... I never really got Von Romanet until one day Michael Caine and I were there tasting the 2003 vintage in in um, Burgundy, the two of us. And Shazos is kind of, you know, big, gentle giant of a guy, very quiet and underspoken. And he was talking about, you know what had happened in the harvest of 03. And he said, yeah, I only got, you know, half the harvest out of Vone because the soil there is so highly concentrated in limestone. You know, there's so little clay to hold moisture. And all of a sudden I went, wow, that's the secret of this, you know, of this place. It has that same elegance, you know, ultimate elegance that you have in Shambul. But they, in Vone, it's to another level even. And, you know, it's just like, I, I had the wine in my hand. He was talking about the, you know, the soil structures. It was like, I get it now, you know. And, you know, now here's another guy that's almost a made grower for us, you know. It's just like the wines come in and the new vintage, they sell out. They're, you know, it's it's that kind of thing, yeah, definitely. Are there other uh, personalities that have really stood out for you? You mentioned Duet. I mean, I imagine at that time Gaston was probably still alive. He was, but, you know, I was, we were de- dealing with Noel Pange at, mm-hmm. the, at that time. Who's, you know, c- certainly Philippe Ferro. I mean, Philippe Ferro, you know, uh, who's a cousin of, of the U.S., is certainly one of the great, great winemakers that I've ever been around. Is I that mean, true? Yeah, I mean, just a guy that, you know, I remember one time I said, oh, this smells like a, a crab apple blossom. He says... I've never smelled crab apple, but no, I think it's more like a lime blossom. I was like, wow, you know, here's this, you know, and here's a guy that, you know, he speaks so precisely about every aspect of his own wines. He's also a grand gourmand, you know, he, he eats all over, he tastes everybody else's wine. He's really well in tune with what's going on. I mean, he's a very, very uh, interesting um personality in person, you know. Jean Fourier is another guy like that, you know, that just talks about wine on, a, you know, another ethereal kind of a level, you know, talks about, you know, you know, I don't put any sulfur on my wines because I have CO2, I don't rack, you know. Uh, and t- it talks about, you know, the the yeast breaking down and giving texture to the, to the wine, you know. It's just all these kinds of things that, you know, people aren't talking about you know, knowing what happened in the previous year so that you can treat in the vineyards to prevent, you know, the following year, just this whole sort of t- total package, you know. Triaca, you know, is another guy, you know, Domenico Triaca, you know, is one of those guys that, you know, kind of talks about wine in, on another level. Uh, you know, it's Luigi Ferrando, you know, that's, you know, Herbaluce is, dry Herbaluce is really something that he pioneered in this world you know so yeah there's a lot there's a lot of those great guys olivier julian you know there's you know probably one of the great those winemakers really good right now and still not so not so pricey and and not so well known either you know it's it's amazing you know simone's another one simone is amazing amazing wine you know and that's 
that's sort of my, I mean, my goal for this year is to really get a lot more people interested in Chateau Simon. They're not, they're expensive, but they're so satisfying. They're so good. And, and, and just sort of a forgotten thing because of, I think, the marketplace over the last number of years. Because people expect something bigger from the South. They don't quite yeah, know how to not expect it. Not necessarily. I think that they just, they sort of were, they, you know. Because of Chatterton, yeah, maybe? Yeah, because they, they weren't really in the marketplace much, mm-hmm. you know. And, they, and they, they were talked over and nobody's going to Simone to write them up or um, nobody really understands those wines. And see, you know, you really, and that's another place, you know, you, you go there once, you, you get a little bit. You go there again, you get a little bit more, you know, you start to things start to fall in place. We had a great visit there this, uh, this spring, and I was like, very sort of enamored from, with, with Simone when I left there. Chatterton actually sold me Simone back in my Café Blue days, and I remember him saying, well, the, the red's very good, but the white, is, the white is the superstar, you know? And he really, uh, you know, he, 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 I think he, I kind of think it was one of those things where he didn't want it to go to the wrong person. I think he felt like, uh, you may have maybe seen some of that, where Chatterton kind of had a resistance to sell to certain people he thought weren't going to understand the wines properly. I felt like, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people maybe would have misapprehended that white if if it weren't put into the right context. Maybe. I, which I happen to really like. <laughs> I mean, but there's a little bit of vintage variation, don't you think, with Simone? I think there's vintage var- variation with everybody. With everything. You know, that's I mean, what you that's, want. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Preferably. <laughs> you know, you don't want the wine to taste the same every year. You know, I mean, it's... It's where I've gotten with a lot of Burgundy too, or a lot any wine. You know, it's like, what does this grower do with the conditions that he's given? You know, and how does he, how how does he, how does he interpret the whole thing in the in the end? You know, and it becomes much more interesting to taste, you know, O two red Burgundy or you know O three red Burgundy or O four red Burgundy. You know, just in that sort of context of how, what the grower did with that with the vintage. So, you know, you mentioned Fourier, and I think that's a really good example. And there's quite a few, actually, Neil talks a little bit about it in his book, but Brovio would seem to be an example mm-hmm. where generational change has really resulted in uh, a major uptick in general quality. Like, you know, d- d- he took over from his father in Fourier's case, and all of a sudden you have these incredible wines, whereas before they really sort of, uh, I couldn't say because I've never had them because no one ever brought them in. Uh, as far as I know. And, you know, Brovi is really taking off right now as you have, uh, you know, still with the guidance of her father, but you have the daughter making the wines. Have You've been in the in the selling chair so long. Have you really seen some of these generational changes and just seen estates uh, just take it up a notch? Well, yes and no, I guess. You know, Jean-Marie Fourier's father, you know, never really wanted to be a winemaker. Mm-hmm. But... That being said, um, you know, Jean-Marie said he's, always, he's my best employee. He loves being on his tractor, you know, and that's what he does. But I, I think that, as Jean-Marie said, I learned to make wine from my father. Oh, know? yeah. And, you know, and, I, I never heard him say that. And if, you know, he gives a great deal of credit. I mean, we, one time we were there and Jean-Marie was in the South and his father did the tasting. And at the end, he pulled out an old bottle that he had made, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah you know, just to show us that. He made he could make great what wine. What was the too. crew? Uh, it was Clos Saint Jacques. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but no. still, you know, it was or whatever it happens to be from him. It was a great bottle of wine, you know, and it was, um, yeah. I, I I don't. I think that 
there was sort of an unfortunate um, happening with uh, with his father and um, you know Parker writing him up and I didn't know that. Yeah, it was he, there was some really bad sort of press and you know he had a container that was shipped over there and it was frozen on the dock in Bordeaux. And then it was sold. Hasn't that happened to you guys a couple times? Like, I, I remember there was a container recently. It wasn't had... our container. It was prior to oh, okay, uh, okay. Us, you know, being involved with Fourier. But, but that sort of destroyed the reputation of, of his father because that oh. wine was sold. Oh, that wine in, was it, sold. It wasn't frozen like our container. We, Wait, had, a, yeah. we, we had a container um, a couple of years ago um, that, w- that, was fro- that the uh, refrigeration unit malfunctioned and it froze the you know, just put it into the freeze temperature and it froze the whole thing solid. It was a big block of ice when it came in, except for all the sparkling wine and it had blown all the tops. Uh, it was a mess, you know? So, yeah. It, it, but uh, you guys didn't go about selling that as if nothing had happened. No, I mean, you, you couldn't. Basically, it, a yeah. lot of it. I mean, we had, we had you know, 05 Corton Charlemagne on that, you know, and Magnums and things like that. And we lost a lot of great wine, you know, Pernon, uh, Il de Vergelas 05. You know, we lost a lot of great wine. The, the last of the 05 Vouvray Sec from 4.0 was on that, you know, not to mention the Vouvray Brut that was there. You know, so. so one day a future archaeologist chipping through the Arctic may uh, come across <laughs> Some really great white burgundy. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's all been uh, disposed of at this oh, okay, point. Okay, right. I thought maybe you guys just you know put it adrift. Yeah, right. And, we, yeah. You know, like he's looking for cavemen, and he's like, "What is this, Faroe? You know, we, it's a drift in our warehouse. That's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. So, uh, what has been uh, just to bring it back a little bit to the New York market? What has been uh, the change that you've seen? What are some of the notable standouts uh, in restaurants or in retail that you know uh, stand out for you over the last twenty years? Um, well, in the, on the retail scene, I think it's it's been a lot of really interested young people that have come in and started stores, you know, and and you know, like I said, Patrick. Watson and Smith and & Vine and, and Brooklyn Wine Exchange later. Uh, I think those, you know, certainly impacted the Amy Pommier out at Prospect, um, you know, certainly David Lilly, um, people at Crush. I mean, there's there's been a, a lot of interest and across the board, I think, you know, I deal with people at Mr. Wright, and they're very interested. They buy a lot from you. I've, they do. I've you seen know? a I lot mean, of Fourier at that shop. I, I mean, that has become a really great uh, client which, for me, be, just because they're, you know... Which is not where anybody would think it is. It's the Upper East Side. It's like in the 80s and early 90s, I mean. Yeah, uh, uh, 89th and 90th, actually. And it's not a wine searcher, so people don't see it. But it's if you go up there, I walked by one day, and I looked in the window, and I was like, wait, wait, wait a second. And then we walked in, because we were like, this is a little strange that you have all that. And I saw, like, the Shangri-La of right. 08 Fourier. I was like, <laughs> oh! It was just a ton of it. Because at the time, all the shops that are a wine searcher were, had, had already sold out, you mm-hmm. know, because the people picked through. So then I went back, and because I was dumb enough to tell people this story, it was all gone. <laughs> it was all gone. <laughs> yeah. Like, when I actually needed one, I, I was buying a gift later, you know, and I, I was like, oh, let me just I'll go get one of those for you. It was all gone. Well, I think that's, you know, that's been sort of the, the magic of the back label. It, you know, you flip our bottle around, it says Neil Rosenthal on the back, you know. And I think, I think they, they do that very, very well up there, you know. And they, they have clients that say, oh, this is Neil Rosenthal wine, you know. I, I'm willing to try it. Let's, sure. You know? Well, I've witnessed that in the Upper East Side, like the people. I, you know, it wasn't much. that way. 
10 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, I mean, when I started with Neil Rosenthal and I was walking into stores that I'd worked with, with Chatter and I said, I work for Neil Rosenthal, you know who he is, don't you? And they go, huh? You know? No way. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You know, there was, there was a lot of that. I mean, ask Michael the same, he'll say the same thing. People didn't know who he was or what was going on. I mean, he'd been out there and assembled this portfolio, but it wasn't really out there. You know, we weren't buying from all the wine we could buy from Lignier at that time. We weren't buying all the wine we could buy from Bartow. Well, maybe at Bartow, but, you know, there were a lot of places we could really expand with. And in, once you get, you know, get to the point where, you become very important to the grower too. You know, it's just not like, oh yeah, I'm selling him a barrel or something like that. Well, I I'm think selling him you, a lot of wine. Guys you know, that's, take the vast majority of Fortier and Brovia. We uh, used to take the production. Mass, I mean, we used. To, I mean, when we first bought in 1995, we bought the 95 vintage and some of the 94 vintage at Fortier. The first time we walked in there. I mean, we had more wine then than we have right now. Oh, is that true? Yeah. So, I mean, he's spread it out a, a little bit he's more. A yeah, he's yeah, I and mean, he's got <laughs> demand from other places. But uh, I mean, I mean, but there were other growers. I mean, with the first time that I was at Cornu, he had which a, is way underrated right. for the transparency and the realness of the wines. I think. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Edmund Cornu was you know wonderful man and made beautiful wines. Um, very traditional of that 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 little corner, you know, of Alos, Alos Shori, yeah. Ladois, you know, mm-hmm. great variation in style, but very, you know, very true gutsy Burgundy, I think, you know. And, I mean, they had a tank of uh, uh, Bourgogne Rouge there, and I said, well, what are you doing with that? And he goes, well, we sell that off, you know, because we don't have market. And I said, well, you know. I think we can. I can sell some of that, yeah. and so and prices were not expensive for those. You no, know, you know, and and they bottled it up, and pretty soon they weren't selling it off anymore, and they were doing the elevage in barrel instead of just in stainless. You know, so it was. Have you seen that happen where the importing has really helped what the winemaker could do, just in terms of physical site, like the support on the buying has really allowed them to expand in a way that allowed for better quality. Yeah, I think so. You know, if you you know if you're able to bottle your your wine and get a little higher price for it, um, you you know you can make improvements. You know, you can it's a little easier. You know, your life is a little easier. So, yeah, I, I think we've seen that across the board for sure. You know, um, are there terroirs that are so often in the wine business we talk about uh, the big success stories? You know, Fourier mm-hmm. um, and and the wines that he makes, but. You know, it's because they're not so much around. We don't talk about what's not there. Are there great terroirs of France and Italy that we're just not seeing because no one's giving them voice? You know, I don't think so. To tell yeah, you the truth, it's been exploited. I, I think so. You know, it's yeah. I think that in certain places, people are doing better work than they had probably done. In other years, it's more, maybe more profitable to be able to do better and to make, you know, reduce your yield a little bit better, take a little bit better care of the wine in the elevage um, because you can sell it now or because some of those areas are, you know, maybe the satellite areas like Minotou Salon or Concy or something like that, you know. I think those those areas benefit from that. But, you know, I was listening to your, interv- I was listening to your interview with... Um, um, with David Bowler, yeah, I guess no. Uh, if I said anything, no, wrong, with sorry. Eric Asimov, excuse me. Oh, okay. And he was talking about you know different areas not being sort of exploited until like the seventies. But you know, I've got 
or the 80s. But I've got, you know, I've got books with pictures of Gaston Huet, you know, back, you know, in, in the 60s and things like that. So I think, you know, it was one of the first things that Chatter never told me. It's like, you know, everything's known. It's just a matter of finding who's doing the best work in Chablis or mm-hmm. in the Macon or whatever, mm-hmm. it ha- or Sancerre. You know, it, the area, it's known, you know, it's, and it's sort of... But what about something like Alsace where I feel like everything has changed stylistically? Like, uh, it used to be clean, crisp white wines, uh, you know, maybe in the 80s. And, and now I feel like that went through a heavier time and now is maybe receding from that a little bit. Have we, have we seen times where something just goes so out of fashion, it's almost kind of gone in a way, and then maybe it comes back later? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I agree with that, especially Alsace. I think that's probably one of, the, one of the great examples of where something like that has happened. Because that's what you, you know... You know, or Alsatian wines were German wines that were dry. You know, that was sort of the the usual way of selling them initially, and then it got to that sort of everything was Zinhumbrach. You know, big, rich. You know, hard to drink. But you know, wines. And now, even you know, Olivier Humbrach is talking about you know the 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 need to sort of increase your yields so that you get a better balance you know in the wine and that you can make dry wines i mean we have a new producer in the northern part of 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 Alsace, Bechtold, and his wine just because he's a little bit further north it's a little cooler it's a little you know his wines are a little drier a little you know and the, of course the, the the terroir is a little different there too it's more Mosel-esque in its its approach but yeah, I think that, you know, growers are, are thinking about, you know, with, you know, climate change and warmer vintages, you know, everybody can, can cite, you know, we used to harvest on this date and now we're harvesting one week, two weeks earlier. You mm-hmm. know, my father never harvested before then. Now yeah. I'm harvesting here. You know, you know, it's like there is global climate change, you know, why? Yeah, I guess that's a debate, but you know, I actually it's happening. think that that became more widely accepted just because people had to drink the O3 vintage. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it felt like it finally made it through to people's public consciousness because you always used to hear people say, no, no, no. Still, sometimes you do, but then suddenly they were drinking wine that actually tasted really different and mm-hmm. it's like they couldn't deny it. I, I actually believe it's because of how O3s tasted in wine that, you know, like the casual guy who's not a. Uh, weather forecaster he's a doctor or just an intelligent guy who drinks wine was like mm-hmm. oh well this is you know like a realization he could palpably see you know you know it's it's been an interesting ride these number of years i think yeah. for me and i mean what stands out? i mean just define it for me uh, well you know i i think it's it's been you know it's like everybody says you know how to get in the wine business and it's just sort of one of those things you fall into because it's something you really like you know and um you maybe could have been more successful monetarily doing something else but this is this has been very fulfilling in the fact that you you get to meet these people and that you get to work with them and it's it's a long thing and they become very sort of important parts of your life you know and their wines become part of your life it's a it's a very interesting thing to have happen say someone uh drinks a lot of wine they don't necessarily uh think too much about pairing it any things you've learned over the years that kind of help that along some of the little shortcuts that you use to pair good food with good wine White wine with fish, red wine with meat. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, revolution. 
<laughs> you, you know, you're going to cause a lot of controversy, Blake. I don't know if we can air this interview now. Yeah, right. I, 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 uh, I mean, sometimes it's like, what's the most interesting thing I have open that day? I mean, I sort of yeah, start just, with hey, that. What do I want to drink? drink? Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I, I my palate in my desire to 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 drink wine has really sort of evolved into wines that are a little bit less in alcohol they're a little bit more higher in acidity that are a little finer i think it's it's why we're in switzerland it's why we're in the val d'osta it's why we're in the valtellina it's why we're in the jura you know it's it's why why we're soon to be in the savoir you know it's because those wines, you know, give you that sort of delicate, uh, balance, uh, balanced wines. And I think, you know, that's, that's what I'm always looking for. I mean, we just picked up a new grower in uh, Gamay and in um, Gatanara and um, in Lasona. So those really exciting Nebbiolo from, you know, higher altitude. It's, I think those are, those are things I'm gravitating towards, you know, now. You mentioned Switzerland. Uh, what's it like to try to sell Swiss wine in the New York market? You know, it's great. Uh, I ha- when I worked, started working with Chatterton, he had a lot of Swiss, Swiss wine. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. And mostly from the... Boy, he must have had like a whole different warehouse. Right? <laughs> mostly, you know, in uh, the Vaudois, uh, in those villages like Desolée, San Saffroni, Pass, Yvorne, you know, in those areas. I love how you just like roll those up. Well, you're pretty knowledgeable <laughs> there. And not a lot of dudes could have done that. I would have been like Dole and... Uh, yeah, right. You know. And now we're actually, uh, you know, above Dole in that area. So it, it, higher, higher elevations in, in the Valais. But, I, you know, Swiss wines are not so different than uh, a lot of other wines. So you can sort of take people there. It's not mm-hmm. like taking them to the Jura, you know, and, and showing them wines that are served wall or something. But you hear the flavor profiles are different. The minerality is pronounced, but they're not so different. You know, there's a Swiss wines have always been sort of a, a cult wine in, in the fact that they're, most of them are sold locally, you right. know, and they're bought by, you know, Roger Federer and his friends, you know, so they're... Which is they, really yeah, pushing a yeah, price up. Maybe right. if, uh, you know, Nadal would win some more, we could all afford it. Yeah, uh, I mean, Switzerland's an interesting place. You know, you start traveling through there and it's like, ooh, I get this place, you know. That there's some yeah, wealth around? A lot of it, you yeah. Know, you know, and it's a very in- interesting country, you know. They, they keep a lot, you know, close to the vest there, mm, so... Mm. In the bank, in, in, in the bank vault. In turn, a lot of their wines are cut close to the vest too so no what's that one wine with the bees on it that's a little sweet aminia aminia de vertas how do you vetro yes vetro sorry that's mm-hmm. classic for me to, <laughs> i'm the king of mispronounce no, no, no. <laughs> but uh how do you sell that wine uh do you sell it like you would sell vouvray or yeah kind of that's kind of the approach i take to it uh you know it's it's certainly that kind of wine that you can you can it has great acidity, but it has incredible richness. So it can be done dry, off dry, late harvest, whatever you know, sweet. So um, you know, it's there's very little of it planted, and it's really, really wonderful wine. I, I prefer it myself dry, but I, you know, I, I, 
with certain dishes, you know, something that has some sort of gaminess or smokiness, you know, the off-dry uh, wines are are very interesting. You know, that's another thing with Vouvray, Demi-Sec or something like that, to pair it with those kinds of things, because there's a lot of flavor there. There's a lot of, a lot of personality in the grape. Um, you, you know, when, I think some of the really classic, I, I mean, I really like the Fondant from their Chasselas, you know, I think that those wines... I haven't had that. I think those, you know, where the Amenia is, the, maybe the showcase wine, uh, I think the Fondant is, can really be the workhorse wine. It can be really a great wine to translate into the public, you know. And I mean, people should be, you know, doing Fondant by the glass, you know. In and this better is the kind of thing that know? a young buyer could hear from you, so right. they should take your appointment. Right. I want so. everyone to know that. <laughs> Blake, you're an awesome dude. Keep, Thanks, Levy. Keep on keeping on, my man. No, thank you. Thank it's you nice for your being time. here. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com that's i-l-l drink to that p-o-d.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating you can donate from anywhere using paypal or stripe on the show website remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app please that's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening